You're listening to the Changing Lives Podcast, where we talk with health professionals, industry experts, and everyday heroes, changing lives on the front lines through emergency healthcare. I'm your host, Ben Cleaver. Well, welcome to the show. I'm Ben, and my guest on the show today is a remote area paramedic. 32 years in the profession, both state and private sector, who says that he is proof that there is a sustainable future and a career in the paramedic profession. Terry Urquhart is, uh, yeah, as I said, a remote area paramedic and founder and company director of uh, Rescue One, which is a medical services and training uh, workplace health and safety training organisation up in North Queensland. And he joins me on the show today. Terry, thanks for your time, mate. How are you? So very good, Ben. How are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. It's a privilege to have you. Now, we all know that, um, you know, you've got the title, right? But uh, your, your wife, Janet, she's the brains of the operation up there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you guys have been operating uh, Rescue One now for many, many, how many years? When did you start? I think um, 2003 was when we um, started Rescue One. Mm. Uh, after leaving, you know, ambulance services. Wow, so that's almost 20 years now. It's 20 years, yes. yes. It's gone very quick. Yeah. And so we're going to get into what uh, what you do, what a remote area paramedic does. You've obviously got a registered paramedic. And uh, I'd love to know, too, your journey from where you started to now, um, both with the business, but as you're in your role, and also some of the changes that you've seen as well. We really want to find out, I really want to find out what a remote area paramedic does and, um, and how the needs of the community and the industry have changed over the, over the years. And we'd love to, it'd be great to get your insight into, um, for those maybe just starting out, uh, thinking about the different areas and the diverse areas within the sector and where they could maybe see themselves. So to get real insight into uh, into that and get your perspective as somebody who's been decades um, in in the industry. So, so Terry, could you give me just uh, give me an idea of the scope of the business up there and maybe how many ambulances you have and and uh, what your role entails? Oh, so we we evolved. Um, we started the business primarily as um, education, um, delivering the health training packages under the, um, the VET structure. Um, we started Rescue One as I left the ambulance service, again, just to have that as our core business. And it was just a matter of being caught up at the right time, the right spot when the mining boom um, occurred. And um, a lot of people will still sort of remember those early days. And um, there was a tremendous need um, for private sector to um, fill a gap um, in the market to provide paramedical services uh, on site um, to these companies um, establishing operations. So we started uh, on a what we refer to as the Santos project. Um, initially, um, we purchased a ambulance vehicle. Um, we customised that vehicle uh, to suit the client's requirements. And um, that's how we started in the in the industry, and been there ever since. So that was quite a, a a new role or a new service back then. Were you kind of sort of making it up as you go, or um... we were all winging it? Yeah, um, we, there was no book, um, there was no scope of practice, um, there was no benchmark 
um, we developed the role as, as the role progressed. Right. So till now, what does the, the company look like now? How has it grown and uh, what sort of uh, clients and services do you offer? From the initial Queensland project that we have um, developed, we, we developed a, now a, a fleet of very specialised um, pool drive ambulances and uh, we provide services uh, Australia-wide, um, all sectors. So every resource sector has uh, different requirements. So we started on, on coal seam gas. Um, from there, we went into um, pipeline um, construction development and that took us all over Australia. We had a, a very large... Um, contract in Western Australia down near Laverton where we constructed a, a, a thousand kilometre pipeline project um, required uh, three paramedics um, on that job. Um, we were spaced out on both ends um, and one in the middle. Um, each had their own ambulance, each had their own camp um, to provide services for and um, progressively as that project um, developed you know we, we staged down until the job was completed. So from the gas days with the coal seam gas, we, we did become referred to as the pipeline paramedics. Um, um, we, we got a very quick grasp of what their requirements were and we fitted their model perfectly and we customised our service to, um, um, to maximise what that client was, was requiring. All of our vehicles are customised um, towards the risk um, assessment of the particular project. So we worked for a number of um, companies, um, Australian and international clients, um, to construct gas pipelines um, all over Australia. And um, uh, we then entered into the coal um, industry. Um, we were contracted by the largest um, operation in the Southern Hemisphere um, to kick off um, their requirements on a coal project. And, and we service um, Probably what I'd like the most is is what's called gas expiration, and um, with gas expiration, it's a, a thing called seismic, and um, it's where they use uh, a, equipment to penetrate the ground um, using sound waves to pick up abnormalities. Um, so this work takes place in very very remote areas where there is no infrastructure, there's no roads, there's no airports, there's no um, there's nothing. It's a very very small crew. Um, we're running on satellite navigation and um, that directs us to where we need to be going. It's a very interesting, it's a project that's done in stages, um, but always starts with cultural heritage, um, where we go in with um, TOs and, and Rescue One provides the medical support for this first stage. Um, it's where we identify um, very sacred sites, um, their GPS, their mark, their reference, they're photographed and documented. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege. Um, um, to see these um, sites and artefacts um, throughout Australia. But it's very important that that's all identified and preserved um, for the next phase of the operation to come through that ultimately um, finishes in production where on behalf of their client, um, they produce a set of data for them that's shown that there is abnormalities in the ground that will lead on to a drilling program. The drilling then will identify what is it? Is it, is it, is it gas? Is it water? Is it and, um, and that's called seismic. So that's a um, project that we're ready to start again next week, um, going back to where it all started. So we're further up the line um, from where we initially were with Santos, um, back on sort of coal seam gas type areas, um, exploring for gas deposits for, um, for a client. 
Wow, you you get to see a lot of Australia in that you role. Do. <laughs> yes, um, really do. It's um, um, you see some of the mapping um, that we're working off, um, but we're very well supported. We, we the the vehicles are incredibly uh, maxed out. Um, we have satellite um, in vehicle monitoring systems, so we can actively live monitor uh, where the vehicles currently are. Um, we use that overlaying with uh, mapping systems to, um, to know that we're on target. We are meant to where we that we should be. So even though we're very remote, very on our own, um, we, we've got a lot of safety features uh, accommodated into that vehicle. Okay, so Terry, you're you're sort of you're monitoring the the health of those involved in in within that in those remote areas, and you're obviously on hand to. To provide medical services and emergency services, um, how do you monitor a remote team like that? And what are some of the things that you're you're, you're doing to, to monitor them and make sure they're in, in full health? This is the skill in in working in remote areas and to provide remote area paramedicine um, to these areas. It, it's a, it's a it's a shift in mindset. Um, when I worked government services, uh, it was a reactive AAA response react to an incident that's occurred. Um, the focus in particularly resource sector is all about um, prevention of injury and health. That's the first trick. And that's mm -hmm. the hardest thing that I try to communicate with paramedics wanting to um, uh, to work with Rescue One on these projects. And that's the first part of it. It's to ensure that we don't incur uh, what's called lost time injury or medical time injury uh, throughout the duration of the project. So it's very important and it all comes in different stages. There's risk assessments with each uh, project that occurs. So different times of year, seasonal and locations, the risk profile changes. So the monitoring aspect of what we're up to or what we're trying to achieve um, then changes. But day by day, um, Within a camp, it all starts with a toolbox talk. This is where we can identify um, issues that have been raised generally within the last 24 hours, what we may perceive to be a risk in the following 24 hours, um, health hints and tips uh, that we have an opportunity to communicate through uh, to staff. Um, we're very remote, we're, we're very small crews sometimes 70 to 100 people within that inherent uh, issues. Um, we, we unfortunately do have a big issue with, with mental health concerns mm. in the resource sector. Yeah, I was going um, to ask about that. It's, it's, it's very concerning. It, um, it's something that you're very watchful, um, discreetly monitoring, um, particularly in toolbox, um, just, just people's demeanours, actions, ears on the ground, eyes um, we go in as one we come out as one is is, is the motto that we like to um, keep by the hardest thing is to um, to get people to put their hands up um, there's a lot of still in that industry a lot of um, fear it's probably the best way I could describe it um, um, there's a knowledge that you just can't hop on a bus and go home uh, it's taken three days to drive here by road um, everyone knows that, so it's, it, they have this, um, uh, how do I say, obligation that they feel that they need to soldier on for mm. the love. But it's it's uh, it, it can be quite concerning. 
and 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 does sometimes take up a lot of our time um, in providing you know mental health support and uh, and monitoring. The big thing is to get the trust of the work crews. Um, we are attached to safety. Um, we're seen as safety as opposed to being an independent health provider on site. It's just how it is in the industry. So it's, uh, there's a fear of uh, what you say or what's heard by them is automatically um, brought back to the attention of management of that particular site. So um, the work to gain that trust and rapport is, is very, very um, important. Mm. So can't be understated. Um, Know, and, and to ensure that all of these needs are, are, are met. And by and large, too, we act as advocates um, for these people. Um, we'll know when to intervene uh, accordingly and um, we'll work on a solution on behalf of that person um, that we may be looking out for, providing care for. That's the big one. Monitoring of hydration is huge and um, it's it's very hard a lot of people are not acclimatized to particular areas and we do have a lot of issue um, particularly with uh, with heat stress uh, on projects some of these projects um, we monitor the ground temperatures to be in excess of about 65 degrees temperature um, you know there's still a production wow. that they still want to occur sort of day in day out so um, you know monitoring of specific gravity levels of on the urine you know so we can put a, an accurate um, number to the level of hydration so we know that we can start to work earlier and identify um, where we may have uh, the potential for medical emergency to occur. So yes, you're right, as much as we've got to be there for the event of um, unexpected, um, the big focus of what we're doing is trying to prevent uh, injury and health concerns developing on site. Mm. That's the hardest thing and it's, a, it, it's, it's probably about the hardest skill um, that any remote area paramedic can bring we're on our own. There is no backup. Um, you've got to make very sound clinical judgments. You, you, you've got to be in a position that you're astute with your decisions. Um, it's not a light decision to remove people off site. Um, um, it's uh, there's a, there's a level of uh, monitoring and um, clinical presentation, clinical. Um, monitoring and then uh, yeah that's probably about the hardest so I hope that makes sense Ben mm. what um, I'm hearing is um, like it's 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 quite a different it's quite a different game to responding in an ambulance to an emergency and getting somebody to a hospital which which is commonly th what people think of and the picture people have of, of what a paramedic does this is all kind of prevention and it's not only physical prevention of physical um you know risks and and things like that but also the mental side of being in a remote situation and some of the things and the monitoring aspects that you're talking about these are quite advanced um and very niche skills so where does somebody i mean how did you learn these things and develop these things is there training is there qualifications out there to to become um, a remote area paramedic at this level and then also and then and then what I'd also like to know is what what sort of um, uh, team do you have or, um, that goes out there and what levels of of training do they possess I, I think largely there's a 
a very large gap um, in that education market. I, I, I think what you will see with paramedicine is a more holistic uh, approach coming through where you see community paramedicine come in, which is targeted towards primary health care. So that's where a lot of these skills uh, are rested. Um, you get the presentations, you get this, you know, what's the skin rash, what's this abdominal pain, what's this that people will present to you constantly. So you're forever um, in that mindset of, you know, identifying and monitoring um, provisional diagnosis, differential diagnosis, um, what do I need to be potentially concerned about? What can I hold? What can I keep on site? And and unfortunately, Ben, it, it's a learned experience. It's probably the best way I could I could ever describe. Um, it's a it's a it's definitely knowing your client. It's definitely knowing the location of where you're working and, and uh, how you can navigate yourself or. or, or across those areas this is what's very hard to explain and i think in some of our roles we're camp based so when we're camp based we're running a, a medical clinic um, we have um, i pioneered uh, telehealth services um, back with uh, santos which was innovative at the time and um, we featured on a on an abc um, program um, explaining about telehealth into the mining sector and that's where i used um, uh, a online service provider, and it was uh, Dr. James Freeman uh, down in Tasmania, and um, it was a, a very unique approach. So we could provide uh, GP services um, anytime, you know, into a camp, but we needed to have that level of, of um, connection uh, through, you know, with um, with data, Wi-Fi, uh, internet. Uh, we're, we're working in those roles as the eyes and ears. So sometimes the GP will ask us to perform a maneuver or use a, an autoscope and then, you know, check um, ears and all sorts of things mm. um, that, that used to occur. But equally, the ability to move that person from site is much easier um, than when you go onto an exploration project and then everything changes again. So it's, um, it's an evolving field. So, if there was a need in a fixed camp um, to evac via RFDS or in some places um, with a rescue helicopter or simply get them out on the next transport um, swing, you know, they're not life-threatening, they can go out on, on a commercial chartered aircraft per se um, to get further you know, care and attention. It, it, it's an easier prospect. When it's in uh, expiration, um, and particularly where we move, I say that all the time, we are a moving target. Mm. Uh, I don't know specifically where you are and, and where I am today is very, very different to where we will relocate to um, the day after. So we're always um, scrambling, searching, considering that in the event that someone that had to, or did have to be removed, you know, how, will, how do we facilitate um, that? Um, I, I, I think I think that there's a lot of avenue um, in community paramedicine, um, in structured and formal education roles, um, you know, wound management, hydration management, um, back to the stuff that we used to provide within the old Queensland Ambulance Transport Brigade through casualty rooms okay. and a lot of um, outback stations, it, it was much the same, you're on your own, but we had a, a, quite a comprehensive um, level of skill set uh, that was provided to us. But as that role of, of 
paramedic and paramedicine come in, it, it shifted then towards a, an acute care type setting and a responsive setting. So that targeted uh, focus on managing STEMIs and, and studying cardiac arrest become the norm and everyone lost the peripheral that we used to, that we used to do years ago. Mm. So what does your team look like? Resilient. <laughs> yeah, number one. Uh, if well, anything else, uh, that one. Yep. And not resilient. They don't last. Um, that's and, and there's no disrespect there. Mm. It's um, um, they're uh, they're smart. They're clever. Um, it's it's not just the, the skill of being a paramedic. It's not just the skill of fitting into the client's needs. Um, they've been given equipment that they need to get in and they need to get out. So if there's an issue with the truck, they, they need to identify what is this issue. Mm. You know, change a fan belt. Can you check the fuses? More importantly, can you change a tyre? There's no RSCQ. There is no backup. Um, it's all you. And so I would say that the best suited are definitely what I regard as resilient. Now, I, I try to avoid the word experience. Um um, it, it really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how experienced you are going into that sector, you suddenly realise um, how much you're about to learn uh, mm. in that environment. But that that right character, that um, problem solver, um, someone who's very calm in thought, um, very analytical in, in, in thought processes, mm. are the ones who um, are very, very successful. Um, in these environments, mm. and they're very hard, they're very hard to um, very hard to find. Um, one of the other big issues that we have is not just paramedical um, um, education, degree, background, uh, knowledge. Um, there's a whole host of other requirements that they require to have, such as you know site-based induction, full drive, recovery skills full drive driving skills uh, are, um, are, are very, very important. And um, uh, when a client gives you a spec sheet, we require these people have this, it, it all needs to be in place and they need to be very, very competent um, with it. And it's been another unfortunate experience that we've had is that people had the qualifications but actually had no adequate training behind the qualification to prepare them. They're very quick to show you've got four-wheel drive training qualifications, but have never changed a tyre. And, right. um, and, and, and sometimes that expectation that I, I need to change a tyre is, is just that thought alone is enough um, to distract people from that, from that industry. Does this make sense, Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You, it's not these aren't the skills and the things that you think about that are going to the the minimum requirements to to be a um, a paramedic or work in you know a remote area um, to change a tire um, is kind of a given but it's 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 not a given with people and as you talked about that resilience to meet whatever comes have that baseline of medical knowledge and maybe some experience but but there's that other component, isn't there? That um, that maybe um, you don't know until it's tested. And so, what's the the minimum qualifications that you all your team are they registered paramedics? As being a Queensland-based 
operator, uh, it, it, it has been a requirement on the bulk of the work that we have performed for them to be uh, registered paramedics. And we also have um, uh, remote area nurses as well, registered nurses um, on the team. Um, I, I, again, um, some are really dual role. They're very, very comfortable. Um, some are more comfortable or suited towards a, a medical clinic type setting mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a, a field uh, role. Um, either way, it has been our requirement um, over over in Queensland. Western Australia have a, a quite a unique system and it's a, um, I think it's quite clever um, how they operate. Um, predominantly it's, it's, it's iron ore type sites, camp facilities, um, and then, you know, the response accordingly. So different states is, is what I found um, definitely have different requirements. Mm. There's, a, there's a very large need and a requirement uh, in Western Australia and um, um, for a dual skilled role um, towards mine safety, uh, emergency response team, where they would like them to be cross-trained in road accident rescue, confined space entry, uh, medical response um, to support an existing emergency response team or to be part of that response team. Um, there's a there's a, a quite a clever combined skill set role that's evolving in Western Australia that a lot of people would find um, very good. Mm. Right, mate. So now, 32 years in this profession. Um, I, I've met you a few years back in the industry and uh, with training, uh, particularly first aid training, and um, uh, was taken by, yeah, your, your experience. I think at the time you said that you had um, been uh, emergency, the, provided emergency services for one of the most dangerous roads in Queensland. And... I couldn't even begin to imagine what, you know, experiences that you've had out there in the profession. Um, are there any sort of significant moments in your career which uh, you feel like defined you or, or, or helped you to kind of stay the course and, and, uh, and also given you that, that real purpose uh, to keep going? What have been one of those moments that has kept that fire for you i i would probably have to say still stands as the first officially the first job i i I ever attended um it was i've had an interesting relationship um uh starting in the ambulance services and and to become a paramedic and that happened many many years ago um we're a a rail family my father was a station master um, growing up in central Queensland at the time, uh, station masters were in charge of everything that occurred um, within the, the yards. So uh, we used to have um, quite random people knock on our door with all sorts of problems and issues. And um, and I, I think from way back early, I, I think I may have um, developed a, a level of interest uh, that way. And... Um, being in the railway, I, I went that direction myself. I've become a, uh, a shunter 
and then part of the shunting requirements was uh, was first aid. And then equally, we also had a, an old um, uh, railway ambulance corps um, that was existent uh, in Queensland and that was training in competitions. And, and I, I, I think that started something in me that I did initially put onto the shelf. And um, through rail, um, I was a relief and shunter, so I used to get sent to all of these uh, townships and I ended up in Tully in North Queensland. And I was there for a three-month uh, stint. Um, I um, had a family tragedy that occurred in the time, and and I think that was a push uh, that occurred, uh, where I walked up to the M station, rang the old buzzer, as it was, and and um, declared that I wanted to join the ambulance service. So my career started from from there with what was called a an honorary ambulance officer or a- ambulance bearer back in the time, and so we volunteered our our time um, we were for a qualified ambulance officer um, I was approached um, to join the ambulance service um, as a full-time um, which led to formal training from that point and qualifications you know all the way through yeah. it, it was it was very difficult so in the time that I was an honorary we had a uh, quite a significant aircraft accident that occurred and um, um, we were on scene for a prolonged period of time. Um, it was very hard to uh, process um, the scene. It's probably the best way I could describe it. Um, but we were prolonged on time. We were waiting for um, accident investigators to arrive to photograph and document. Uh, we had duties in those days, so uh, we removed deceased from public areas. That was part of the, the role back in those days. And, um, and when that job was completed, I come back to the station and I found it very difficult to understand what was occurring. So with the officers that was I was with, I um, one was processing his trauma through dark humour. Another was nonchalant that it even occurred. I was watching another one make a coffee. And I'm just looking, and then there was another officer, and he was sitting in the corner, and he was openly, freely crying, and it was very hard as a as a as a young person trying to process um, what we've just encountered, and then the reactions of what was going on around me. So I um, I was quite confused by it all, and and I bolted. I I slipped out the back door, and I went home, and I declared I was never coming back ever again <laughs> and um and i received a phone call three days later um from the superintendent and and you know and then i've told the story before and and um and it was asking me well what did he say for you to come back and the point was it there was nothing that was said it was a, a very short uh terry this is ralph Oh, hi, Ralph. You coming back or what? Well, that was it. That was the phone call. And because he did ring me, I said yes. And then I hung up. <laughs> there was no debrief. There was no. But there was that sense of connection. There was that sense of, that sense of family um, that yeah. we had. And um, I, um, um, I, was, I was very young, obviously, in those days. And returning back 
to that station and that that sense of um, family and and being amongst uh, comrades and and receiving the reassurance um, um, that your abnormal reaction to an abnormal event was perfectly normal. And and I think that was it, Ben. I think that was the biggest uh, turning point um, um, that I had, and and that made me more determined that I was meant to be here, and and it continued on ever since. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about the role, the remote area role, and, um, you know, in a sense, very, very hard to um, to prepare for it other than um, get the quals and experience it. But um, is there anything that – is there any way, recommendation that you would have for people maybe hearing what about what you do and interested to um, go down that route um, what's some advice that you would give them to prepare for such a role uh, now, maybe starting out? The, the, the first is to be honest with your limitations. It's, it's um, seek that guidance and, and the direction. I, I initially say to people, you can't have enough qualifications and, and they ask for specifically which ones. And But if you can picture that as an entry level to on site, um, everyone on site, irrespective of your role, will require these level of skill sets. So I, I commonly say um, you can't invest in yourself enough. It is a, a personal investment um, in time and in money um, in putting together a portfolio of qualifications that will support your um, application or decision or, or role. Um, a, um, it's, it's hard for people to have the concept uh, that you will not be trained by your provider because we have a start date. There's, there's no time and there's no allocation for any site-based training. You've got to be pre-qual trained uh, before you before you arrive. Mm. Um, completely different to a lot of other circumstances. So all of the main ones, and, and if they can think that um, paramedical will always be bungled with safety, um, unfortunately we're not viewed by many companies as the production side, um, we take from the bottom, if that makes sense. Um, we're costing the project, if that makes sense. Um, some clients, some companies truly do see the value in what you're doing. Some are, are struggling to justify the existence of. So if, if I was to say, if you keep in that mindset, it's not uncommon um, that you'll be required to do the drug and alcohol testing of the workforce. Um, to not only Australian standards, but also to the policy of um, the principal contractor or the client um, to have those qualifications in place. Not only to have your medical qualifications in place and, and current, um, four-wheel drive driving is, is huge. It's very, very significant. And, and to really invest into good quality um, training that will prepare you um, know your limitations, you know, like um, if, if you need to do a basic car maintenance course to understand how I need to check my tyres, where's the information, um, how do I check my oils, my levels, um, you, you, you truly do need um, to know that that's part of your daily uh, jobs 
in, in pre-shift and, and to keep operational uh, on site. The moment that the paramedical is not operational, the site is in jeopardy. It's all bungled and it's all hinged on the paramedical role. Um, we're probably the, the most um, powerful people on site, um, if that makes sense, under health and safety. Um, I, I, again, I, I'm a person who's been pushing um, to try to create um, a, a lead way to bring people into the industry under supervision as opposed to sending them out mm. unsupervised. Mm. Um, again, we're varying degrees of success. Um, everything in the resource sector is contract-based. So there's, there's, there's no other way um, uh, about that. And, um, and even with a contract being in place, um, I commonly do talk about the 24-hour contract. So for any one 24-hour period of time, um, this is where you'll be. <laughs> what happens in the next 24 hours, no one will know. Wow. And, and that's the truth. It's it's sort of – Wow. It's quite – It's and, uh, and so that's why I could, I could honestly say to people just um, um, be realistic. Um, people like myself know – and uh, if you're if you're honest and 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 work with people like myself, I can help prepare for that role better. But definitely, all of your medical, um, anything workplace health and safety related, um, definitely drug and alcohol qualifications. Uh, get all your four wheel drive um, in place. Um, that's probably about the best that I could say. Mm. Uh, initially yeah yeah that will help and then see something on a project too is um, that on a production site where you're camp orientated um, not only are you uh, jettisoned into that role um, but you're also the main person within an established uh, ERT, an emergency response team. So out of the work pool on any particular shift of an emergency occurs, there's down tools, and then suddenly we've got enough personnel to run a rescue truck and a fire truck supported with, with medical. And um, so ERT training, um, road accident rescue training, anything that will get you more aligned to those environments and skills and um, um, and the hierarchy of, of what occurs, if that makes sense, Ben. Because um, you feel that you're amongst yourself, emergency occurs, and then suddenly there's 12 people all looking at you for direction and guidance. But then sometimes you you and you alone uh, are it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Such a yeah specialised role, diverse skills in play, and as you said pointed out uh, when I asked you what does your team look like and you number one thing you said was resilient that's what they look like um, yes and it's almost like one of those roles that you sign up to the army or whatever you go and like yes. I'm there no matter what rain hail snow or shine and I'm utilizing these skills many and varied um, to to get this job done which seems quite attractive to the right the right people, employing all that knowledge, experience and ability to take on whatever you're facing and know that in 24 hours' time it might be completely different um, is, uh, it could be quite, um, quite a satisfying and rewarding career for the, for the right people. Correct. I get, I get a lot of personal satisfaction. Um, my... Desire my outcome is um, 
everyone's coming home and that's how we roll and we go in with all the preparation um, we execute very very well and the objective is to get to the other end of the project um, without too much intervention at all and it's a it's a funny thing if you do nothing it's a good project that's the trick with her and the more that you can influence that role um, that I'm not going to be in a position um, uh, to try to look after an acute emergency and then to recover that emergency if that makes sense then so if if um, um, again it's all coming back to that preemptive and preventative role and um, you know so when you see things that are unsafe you can forward predict uh, um, what an injury outcome could occur if you don't stand up and step up and then take action there and then um, to stop that from occurring. Um, I, again, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a different perspective. It's a completely different mindset um, we're working under. Um, yeah, and uh, look, mate, for, for myself, just talking to you today and hearing about um, this area of the sector, it just I thought I kind of had um, most things pinned down uh, or most opportunities in different um, sections of this industry pinned down, but it's clear that I don't and, and it's such a diverse, uh, once people build these skills and obviously also have different experiences in different areas of the sector, um, there's just such a diversity of different uh, different roles and skills required and people required uh, within um, out-of-hospital healthcare uh, and emergency services. And uh, it's been great to, to get another perspective uh, by talking with you today. So, mate, thank you so much for your time again. Um, now, so, Terry, essentially you've got an entrepreneurial streak here because obviously you run your business but you, and you, you do your training, first aid, workplace health and safety training up there. There's a few arms to this business but also you've developed a, a product as well, a product developer out of your experience, the Rescue Bandage which is essentially, a, from my perspective, a combination from the old um, blood pressure cuff and a, and a commercially uh, developed tourniquet and you've kind of combined them in uh, to produce the rescue bandage, which is getting quite a take up around uh, Australia and and internationally, mate, tell us about the rescue bandage. Yeah, well, you've identified it, and that's exactly where that design uh, come from. So many years ago in the ambulance services, we never had commercial tourniquets, and um, we adapted with a blood pressure manual, blood pressure cuffs, and the bladder within the cuff. Um, was positioned over the major arteries and we use that as a hemorrhage control device. Ah, okay. And um, so that's actually where the the key essence of that design has occurred and it developed into um, what I brought to market. It's called the the Rescue Bandage. It's an inflatable tourniquet um, designed to not only increase the pressure over the blood vessels to control the bleed, but it's also designed to protect blood vessels um, and underlying nerves uh, from linear damage um, that some... Uh, tourniquets are, are known to occur or, or uh, occur to people. It was a big project. It was quite a big uh, undertaking. Um, it started uh, with a prototype uh, device. Um, prototype um, then led to a pre-production model. Uh, it was sent away for uh, independent certification and testing. And then I started the process of TGA application. Now, I think TGA is more prevalent in today's 
media for the vaccine for the coronavirus. A lot of people were unaware of the role of the TGA, um, but they're our, our regulator for all medical devices and equipment and, and medications. And, and it's, it's quite a, a significant um, application uh, process, um, but uh, was approved by the TGA. And, and now we sell the, the rescue bandage, um, not only Australia-wide, um, but we distribute into uh, France as well. Amazing, right? That's great. Have you got one? You don't happen to have one there on the desk or anything, do you? Don't. No, I don't. <laughs> so it's a it's a big long bandage. Just Google it if you're listening. You're interested. I used to, uh, when I was first aid training, actually use uh, the the rescue bandage in in some of the training um, for catastrophic bleeding. And it was a very, very easily. It was very easy to apply. Quite, uh, quite a difference between the other commercially made tourniquets and uh, and this one, because essentially it's a you wrap it on and you pump it up just like a, a blood pressure cuff, um, and very, very fast. And even something you can actually apply and do it on yourself. Here we go. There it is, the rescue bandage. Fantastic. Give us a look in the window. Um, oh yeah, that's the instructions. It's it's pretty easy, right? It is. Whack it on. It as is. I was saying, it's easy to do it, get it onto yourself as well, um, to self-administrate. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, all sizes. So it's 1.48 metres in length, wrap tight and inflate until the... To the... <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And it's, it's a lot longer, obviously, so you can fit around the leg and things like that. Yep. Excellent, mate. Well, it's great to, it's fantastic to hear that. And it's awesome to hear the story as well, that essentially it was something that um, you developed, you saw as a need within the emergency and something you you were using, you know, the blood pressure cuff, uh, because there simply wasn't something on the market. Um, and as I was saying, when you were away, uh, going to get it, um, I used to, utilize it in first aid uh, training just to show people what are some of these commercially made tourniquets, what they look like, and this particular one, um, and how easy it is to put on and therefore um, more effective because timing is obviously of the essence uh, when you've got um, catastrophic hemorrhage. So well done, mate. Well done with that, and it's great to hear the success. Thanks, Ben. Great, mate. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. I'll let you go. Um and, uh, yeah, if you're up in North Queensland, you need a first aid certificate and you need some workplace health and safety training, Rescue One is uh, the place to go. And also, you know, obviously medical services, remote especially. Um, so, mate, uh, thanks for your time again today and all the best. Thank you, Ben. Good to see you. Thanks, mate. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Changing Lives. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating, writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Did you know we're also on YouTube? Just search for Changing Lives Podcast and you can watch our episodes in full HD video. Yeah. A huge thanks to Australian Paramedical College for supporting this podcast. 
If you are interested in learning more about the exciting and diverse career opportunities in emergency healthcare in Australia and which one is right for you, head to apcollege.edu.au for more info and to get your free personalised healthcare career development plan. Special thanks also to our audio and visual engineer and editor, Jose Biotto. And as always, it's been a pleasure to bring you this episode. Until next time, don't stop changing lives. Thank you.